Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from experts Shaji Kumar and Ashutosh Weshalekar, who share their highlights from the 18th meeting of the International Society of Amyloidosis, which was held in Heidelberg, Germany. The experts cover several topics, including the evolution of diagnostic approaches in light chain amyloidosis and how imaging techniques have improved over the years. Other topics covered in this podcast are the role of stem cell transplantation in the era of daratumumab-based treatments, unmet needs in risk stratification, and more. Good afternoon, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here at the International Society of uh, Amyloidosis annual workshop uh, in person in, in this beautiful city of Heidelberg. And it's a pleasure to join uh, Professor Shaji Kumar here from the Mayo Clinic, Shaji. Hi. Um, again, I think it's uh, wonderful to be at this meeting. I am Shaji Kumar. I am at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And uh, with me uh, is Dr. Ashutosh Vatsalekar um, from UK. So Shaji, what have been the highlights for you so far? It's been an interesting meeting. We have been talking about everything from diagnosis uh, to treatment and also looking at some of the newer therapies that are coming along. But I think one of the things that really struck me is you know, how much the diagnostic approaches have evolved over the years, especially with the more sensitive techniques that we have. And you uh, talked a fair amount about uh, imaging as an option the other day. Indeed. I think. Uh, to me, the imaging, uh, the changes in imaging in amyloid have been very interesting because for probably the last uh, 20 years, we've done echocardiography and said that was it and there wasn't really very much else. And then we had two centers in the world ourselves and in the Netherlands who did uh, specific amyloid imaging with uh, SAP scintigraphy. But now with cardiac MRI scans, but also more so with the specific tracers which can image amyloid. Uh, we, we are kind of moving in an era where we can not only uh, uh, tell what's happening with the end organ function, but we can also image the patient as a whole uh, with maybe a single injection and more so something that can become commercially available that will be available in many hospitals. Yeah, especially fascinating was what was shown with the MRI scans, not only in terms of cardiac um, assessment, but also the neurological assessments, how you can actually visualize the nerves and see the measurements and see how that changes. Absolutely. I think that that has been very important because um, uh, tracking nerve amyloid has always been uh, a huge challenge, both in uh, AL amyloidosis, but also in the other familial uh, neuropathic amyloidosis. And, uh, there has been little data for, for years on how to image the nerves, but I think with the high resolution um, MRI scintigraphy, I'm sure we'll be able to follow the nerves better um, for neuropathic amyloid imaging. And I think it certainly will help us kind of get past, uh, you know, again, the biopsies, the aspirates and the congruence chain. We still need those um, and we need the mass spectrometry definitely for uh, characterizing the amyloid, but certainly this whole body imaging will maybe allow us to at least maybe screen for some of those things early on. And Absolutely. So the other thing which uh, interested me, and uh, I'll be very interested to hear what you think, is uh, a lot of, there was some in the preclinical sessions yesterday, there was quite a lot about the light chains and how one might utilize that for early diagnosis. And I know you've done a lot of work on mass spectrometry and light chain glycosylation. What do you think? Right, I think the, the glycosylation aspect particularly is of interest and I think there will be other post-translational modifications that we will learn better uh, with the more uniform use of 
um, aspect-based approaches. But you know, for the study from our own center, Dr. Spinzeri had done clearly showed that patients with lichen that's glycosylated has a much higher risk of progression uh, to other uh, disease, especially development of lichen amyloidosis. Um, and I think this is going to be uh, very important, as, especially as we start probably screening a little bit more uh, patients and identifying maybe more monoclonal gammopathies in the community. I think understanding uh, which path those people are going to take in terms of progression, are they going to be going into more into myeloma, more uh, amyloidosis, I think that would be really valuable in terms of kind of more tailored approach uh, to the um, um, to the follow-up of these patients. And I thought the, the also the aspect about the light chain related direct toxicity on the tissue, I thought that was quite interesting as well. I think that is really crucial because uh, we know from our experience in treating these patients that the cardiac biomarkers improve you know, within weeks of getting a complete response. But we have no way of figuring out how the light chains are toxic and actually having a measure of the light chain toxicity, even for different organs, may allow us to tailor therapy better because we often find that uh, we have patients who achieve a partial response or a very good partial response and actually don't feel better in any way. And maybe these are patients where this light chain toxicity is playing a big role. And, uh, and the goal of responses might be, um, might be very different in, in some of these patients. Yeah, certainly some, in those patients particularly, I think if you can get the light chains down fast, yeah. I think that would definitely have more of a profound impact than those other, uh, other patients. Now, um, in terms of the, um, you know, the risk assessment, I know we talked about it a little bit this morning and a variety of different um, systems are being developed. Um, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, what are we missing in terms of the risk stratification systems? What are the other patient characteristics and you have uh, studied large groups of patients? Yes, I think, I think we have had a huge focus on the heart. I think we have got a number of staging systems. Uh, you have published uh, most of them and we have kind of modified some of them. But, uh, and then we have got the renal staging system. But the bits which we miss are the gut involvement, the autonomic neuropathy, and the incorporation of a patient's functional status into this. So we all know that patients with amyloidosis who have poorer performance status don't do so well. But in none of the risk stratification model that's included. And then the other bit, which is becoming increasingly interesting, is uh, what is happening with the bone marrow. You know, not just the percentage of the plasma cells in the bone marrow, but also what's happening with the genetics in the bone marrow and how that um, impacts on the treatment responses and outcomes. And I think our risk stratification models, we need to start incorporating some of the stuff that you've been working with the International Myeloma Working Group, where you've got your blood parameters, you've got biomarkers, and then you've got bone marrow parameters, including genetics. And I think we need to start moving towards getting an integrated um, risk stratification model, which is beyond just um, you know two blood biomarkers that we've used for 20 years. Yeah, I think those blood biomarkers had a disproportionate effect on the outcomes, primarily because of the early mortality. Now that patients are actually starting to live longer with the newer therapies, the markers that are probably going to define the longer term outcome, which is probably the more clone-related factors are going to continue to become important. Absolutely. I mean, we showed recently, we published a paper showing that patients who relapse within two years of the initial treatment have much poorer outcomes than patients who live much longer. And I think all of those things are going to be increasingly important as, uh, you know, we, we still have those patients who present in a very advanced state where we need different approaches, but, but honestly, 80% of patients are not that advanced. They are less advanced, and we are in a place where those patients will achieve deep responses to therapy and then maximizing and figuring out how we get those long-term responses is gonna be very important. That's true, and in fact, the data that was presented showing that people who went into a 
complete response, almost half of them having progressed in 15 years, brings up a provocative question, have we cured those people? What do you think? Absolutely, I think that is such an important thing. And I, I think a lot of those patients uh, have normalized their organ function and live essentially normal lives. And it would be nice to have a sort of a deep MRD assay, which tells us that there is nothing there. Uh, because they always worry of the risk of relapse, and I think that always hangs over these patients because some of them will relapse at 10 years, but maybe functionally those patients are cured. But having biomarkers identified, such as the bone marrow plasma cell percentage and even the free light chain, that tells you which patients don't do so well after a stem cell transplant is quite important. So uh, what do you think will be the role of stem cell transplant now in amyloid, now that we've got DARA-based treatments? Are you still transplanting the same number of patients or have you changed your approaches? We're certainly transplanting less number of patients, there's no question about it. Um, and I think um, part of the reason is, of course, the the really nice efficacy that we have seen with uh, the daratumumab combinations, but certainly, I think there's still going to be a role for uh, stem cell transplant in this disease because we are seeing all these patients for 15, 20 years out from stem cell transplant mm -hmm. doing great. So clearly, you know, those are patients who might be, as you mentioned, functionally cured. So I don't think we can necessarily um, stop transplant for uh, everyone, but maybe we would do a more um, risk-adapted or a um, patient-characteristic-adapted approach to transplant, and it could be that patients get a daratumumab-based therapy, and when they relapse and we go into, or if that doesn't really quite work, then we might use stem cell transplant. But I still think that's patients with single organ involvement, particularly renal involvement, um, who are in good shape. I think the durability of response is something we know very much from all the studies that have been done, whereas the durability with the newer therapies, we still don't have a good sense of that. I completely agree. And I, I feel we are, at least in the UK, I think we are transplanting more patients than we were transplanting five years ago. Mainly because we are, we, we, are, we do very little, as you know, very, we do very few first-line transplants. But what we are seeing is that we have got patients who come in with uh, renal cardiac amyloid and they actually recover and they're functionally very, very good. And now we're transplanting almost all our patients in their uh, in first relapse. As soon as they relapse, we'll do some sort of reinduction, short reinduction with another DARA-based regimen and then transplant them. Because um, we, we do, feel, I still agree with you that, you know, the long durability of transplant is... Uh, is important, and when we looked at our first-line transplant versus patients who were transplanted and relapsed, we didn't really see a big difference in the outcomes. And I suspect the clone is a, mo a bit more benign than myeloma, so the transplant in second line probably isn't going to be that different than transplant in first line. Yeah, I think the, many of those treatment paradigms that we see in myeloma kind of playing out in, um, in amyloidosis as well, especially in terms of the controlling the clone. But I think what was really fascinating was the, um, some of the presentations at the meeting looking at the antifibril strategies, and I think that is going to really make an impact if that, those studies turn out to be positive. Absolutely, so I think that's, that's really, you've touched on the key point. You know, the organ improve, function improvement takes a long time. And we need a drug which will help these organs to recover faster. And therefore, the antifibril strategies, uh, we certainly saw some work with uh, something from a trellis where uh, they were able to show some evidence of uh, binding to the amyloid fibrils in a variety of organs. And then preclinical work showing that there was regression in mice model uh, with, with different agents. So we've now got at least four different agents that are there which are potential for uh, for causing fibril regression and maybe rapid improvement in organ function and uh, at least three phase three trials are ongoing. So I think that is the space we have to watch. Um, and that is really what I suspect is lacking. And uh, maybe um, at the next amyloid meeting in uh, 
uh, at the Mayo Clinic, we may have some data that we might be able to see what these things are doing. Yeah, certainly dramatic progress and certainly better outcome for our patients. So. so I think it's been a very exciting meeting. We've got lots of nice data and we are seeing a significant improvement in patient outcomes. We've um, seen new therapies, we've seen new imaging modalities and new methods of restratification. Wonderful. Thank you, Ashish. Thank you, Shaji. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and subscribe to VJHemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.